0: Yeah, fools. What is going on? This is the QTR podcast. Today is July 30th, 2020. Stoked about today's podcast. Before we get started, I want to remind everybody that this podcast is brought to you by my patrons. Patrons are people that sign up and donate a monthly recurring sum to help support the podcast. People I am eternally grateful for, and honestly, if you enjoy this podcast, which will always be free and will never have advertisements in the middle of it, despite my verbal diarrhea here in the beginning, you have my patrons to thank. So first and foremost, I want to shout out my exclusive gold and silver providers over at JM Bullion. JM Bullion is the only place that I buy gold and silver. They do a fantastic job. They have a wonderful stock of inventory. They ship their orders very quickly their turnaround is fantastic they have done over three billion dollars in sales over the last decade and have a well-earned reputation as some of the best in the business that is why i only buy from jm bullion and what a time to be long gold and silver right now with gold approaching two thousand dollars an ounce and powell basically coming out yesterday and saying we have no plans of stopping our pornographic amounts of quantitative easing i say buckle up and uh, hold on for the ride. I honestly, personal opinion, not investment advice. I think gold is a double, silver's a triple from here. We'll have to see. I've been wrong about lots of things in the past, but either way, if you want to be wrong with me. Email my friend Kathy at JM Bullion, K-A-T-H-Y at jmbullion.com. Tell her you want a discount QTR sent you and you want free shipping. She will hook it up or you can use the link in the podcast description to check out JM Bullion. This podcast is also brought to you by my dear friend Pete Hedges over at The Trader's Path. The Trader's Path is a investing and day trading service that is just a wonderful community. If you're a day trader, you spend your day in the market. You're looking to surround yourself with people and new ideas and uh, daily watch lists. They do a live stream, they do investor education. They trade in all kinds of markets, red and green markets. They trade options and stocks. Pete and the Trader's Path really is something different. He started his service because he was a member of other services he got tired of their nonsense and bullshit. He thought he was getting front run on trades. He thought they didn't really care about his membership. So he said, I want to start an actual community of real people that are honest people and give a shit and actually want to talk to each other and uh, and create for themselves a, a good discussion about the markets on the daily. So that's what the Traders Path is. They just celebrated their one-year anniversary. The link is in my podcast description. If you reach out to Pete, he will give you a discount if you tell him that I sent you. Um, Maybe even a 14-day trial, too. Check out my brother Pete at The Trader's Path. This podcast is also brought to you by my friends at the Sang Luchi Steam Room. Folks, if you like following unusual options activity, which is a great way to potentially forecast moves in the equities market nobody does it better than the sang lucci steam room no service out there right now i can guarantee you has been around as long as the sang lucci steam room these guys are masters at tape reading and looking at money coming into the illiquid options market which has made them successes in trading, and they also have a wonderful community over at the Steam Room. It is an aesthetically pleasing piece of software to look at. It's easy to understand. You don't have to know complex terms and jargon. Wall Street Jesus makes it very easy for you to understand, and the Steam Room can be well worth its money. You can pay for it in a month. Maybe you can pay for it in a day, as long as you don't trade like a herb. Check out the Sanglucci Steam Room. It's one of my favorite products available in, for anybody that's involved in trading, especially if you're in the options market. The link to that's in my podcast description. If you reach out to Lucci and tell him I sent you, he will give you a free trial. He will give you a discount. So just tell him you want to try it for free and then call him a herb and tell him I said so for shaving on my podcast, that fucking guy. All right, this podcast is also brought to you by my dear friends at Corvus Gold, my very good friend, Nate at Traders for a Cause, my favorite, Charity, Ken R., Chris Bede, Nicholas Parks, Matthew Zimmer, shipping analyst Jay Minsmeier Russ Valenti, my buddy Crichton Titus. Thank you guys so much. And some of my newest patrons, Dave Swingle, Chris, thank you so much. I just got your email. Chris Bott, I appreciate you. Mike Fay and Will, Gabriel Steuben and Roy Zimmerhands Thank you so much. Mem 55 is in the house. Joseph Rainier, Jake Der David Harvey. Thank you guys for supporting the podcast through Patreon. Uh, also pawnbroker.com. I lost a lot of patrons as a result of the COVID pandemic. I know that people are strapped, uh, so I appreciate people stepping up. My new patrons coming in, thank you so much. I also don't want to forget patrons that have been with me for a while, like my friend Kaiser. Uh, I want to shout out Government Cheese, what's going on, still in the house. Uh, my buddy Thomas Cravey and Sean Wyland. Thank you for continuing to support the podcast and some of my damn old school patrons like uh, how about Jason Bernstein and Nathan Master. Thank you so much, my friends. And finally, last but not least, Roy Nercesian. I think I got it right. And Ben Roy. Hey, what's going on? Thank you guys so much for continuing to support the podcast. The advertisement-free podcast is going to start right now as soon as I remind you that this is not life advice, trading advice. I'm not an investment advisor. I'm not a life advisor. I'm not a guru. I have no answers for you, ladies and gentlemen. All I'm trying to do today is have a discussion that I personally find interesting, Also, I recommend a two-drink minimum for this podcast. You can line them up next to each other and drink them all at once. You can drink them over the course of the entire podcast. doesn't really matter to me. It can be wine, liquor, beer. As long as you're taking two to the face over the course of the next hour or two, I'm going to be a happy camper. And trust me, you're going to feel a lot better too. This is not an endorsement to get drunk. All right. Man, I'm really excited to have today's guest on with me. I first saw Mick West on the Joe Rogan podcast and I had never uh, gone to Metabunk before, which is his website, and I love listening to skeptics. I really do. I love listening to skeptics and debunkers and people that are short sellers like myself in the market and people that do research trying to essentially figure out why companies aren't doing what they say they're doing. We're all kind of debunkers of sorts as well, which is why Uh, I think a lot of what Mick does appeals to me so much. And I think also I just said to Mick off the air that on this podcast we have indulged a number of conspiracy theories. And uh, I've been probably less skeptical about some than I should have been. Just for the purposes of A, I didn't have the knowledge base or B, um, I didn't really uh you know didn't really understand the subject matter well enough or I just wanted to keep the conversation going. So I think Mick is going to bring a wonderful balance to the podcast. Um Mick is a science writer, he's a skeptical investigator, and he is a retired video game programmer. He has created the websites Contrail Science and Metabunk, as I uh just said, for which he investigates and debunks pseudoscientific claims such as chemtrails, UFOs, and conspiracy theories. And Mick has appeared in various media as an expert analyst and science communicator. You may have seen him, or I did, which was on the uh, Joe Rogan podcast. Mick West, thank you so much for being with me, brother. How are you today?
1: I'm doing great. Thank you very much for having me. And thank you for that lovely introduction.
0: Oh, I can't tell you how psyched I am to be able to speak to you. You're one of these people that I... Randomly reached out to thinking that you are extremely inaccessible because of the quality <laughs> of your work, and you just turned right around and messaged me back and said, "All right, let's do it.
1: Well, as you seen, I don't really have a very big uh, Twitter following. I'm not as quite as famous as people think. Uh, <laughs> there's a There's a number of people in uh, small circles that will have heard of me. Like if you're into chemtrails, you might have heard of me. If you're into some some types of nine eleven uh, conspiracy theories, you might have heard of me. And now increasingly uh, UFOs, which is a bit of an odd one. I was never really a UFO guy, but uh, I've been pulled into the world of investigating UFOs.
0: Yeah, I can't wait to talk about that with you. Um, But it's interesting. You know, I had Mark Defont on a couple of uh, months ago as well, who I also saw on Joe Rogan. And he was the guy that was tasked with debunking Graham Hancock and Randall Carlson on an episode with Michael Shermer. I'm not sure if you saw that one, but uh, he was another guy. I just reached out to him, Mick, and he just, you know, he's got like 400 followers on Twitter. I'm like, Mm -hmm. how did did people not, you know, (laughs) I guess the debunkers don't get, the skeptics don't get a lot of love, Mick, you know?
1: They don't. Uh, It's much more, people are much more interested in uh, entertaining theories. And the boring theories, which is kind of what I end up doing, uh, tend to not get as much interest. I could probably make uh, some money. I don't really make any money at all from this. I could make some money by uh, promoting these things rather than actually trying to debunk them. But, yeah, I think, you know, you said you reached out to me and uh, didn't think I would be accessible. But I think that's something that's kind of common across the board is that people like scientists and communicators and writers are a lot more accessible than you would think. Yeah, and sure that the the A list people aren't that much, but uh, anybody who's like written a book, you can probably just email them, and they will they will email you back if they're not uh, super famous.
0: Yeah, I remember when Rogan had Graham Hancock on for the first time. It was like episode one fourteen or something. That's how he opened. He said, "You know, right. the the internet is an amazing place where you can just kind of reach out to people." And then there they are, you know, if this was like the 70s or the 80s, I mean, I would have had to have written you like a letter and send it registered mail and shit.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, you might have got an even better response there. that. But yeah, most, most scientists aren't, uh, aren't inaccessible. And that's something with the chemtrail conspiracy theory. Like I was, I was talking to one scientist, uh, Dr. David Keith, who is this famous guy in the uh, geoengineering research community. And he said, like, if anybody wanted to know you know, what his office was doing, you know, if they've got some kind of secret spraying program, all they'd have to do was actually go around the office and ask somebody. Ask one <laughs> of the grad students who works there. They don't even have to, like, you know, write him a letter or, uh, or call him on the phone. They could actually go to his office and he would, like, you know, tell them what was up. So, the, most people are pretty pretty willing to talk about what they do.
0: So, I guess the first question I have for you is for my listeners, that have never heard of you, and even a little bit sure. for me. Talk about making the transition from video game programmer and uh, Neversoft, right? You were with Neversoft? Mm-hmm. and yeah. And just going into full-time debunking.
1: Well, I was a full-time video game programmer, obviously, before. And uh, I moved from the UK to the United States uh, once in the 90s. and. Uh, got a job here at some kind of crappy video game company. But at that time, everybody was starting their own companies. And I, I hooked up with the guy, Joel Jewett, and another guy, Chris Ward, and we, we founded Neversoft. And we made a bunch of little games for a while, and then we hit the big time with Tony Hawk. And yeah, I'm a video game programmer. That's my background. So what I'm very good at is debug debugging which is remarkably simpler, similar to a debunking in both pronunciation
0: sure.
1: and uh, in what you actually have to do to figure things out. So I found my skill set was actually quite, quite suited to uh, doing this kind of investigations. And it's especially suited to UFOs, which is probably why I've got been drawn into it, in, in that a lot of the UFO stuff involves like kind of 3D analysis. And a lot of video games is 3D graphic generation, so it's the same equations just applied backwards. So you can do the same things, the same math uh, in in analyzing a lot of these things that you would do in uh, in in doing video games. Really, it's the debugging part of things, like debugging a video game. You know, say you're skating along on some level in tony hawk and you skate up to a ramp and instead of like going up over the ramp you skate straight through it and you've got to figure out you know why is that so you start digging into it and you check to see you know whether the faces on the polygons of the ramp flagged flagged correctly and then if they were then you know is there some problem with the code is uh, is there a calculation overflow is the something in the data that's messing up the, the calculations, or is it just is it off to the one side of something else? So you, you investigate all these things, you figure out what's the root cause of this bug in the video game. And finding the root cause of things is really what's behind a lot of the debugging, debunking that I do. And uh, that, yeah, something happens, like say, 9-11, a building falls down, what's the root cause of that building falling down? You know, what what actually caused it to fall down? And you can say, obviously, like, you know, a plane threw, flew into the building and it uh, caught fire and then it, uh, it fell down. So that one thing caused the other. But then you've got to figure out how does it, how does one thing lead to the other? What, what is the actual causal chain of events that goes from this, this one, one cause to the actual outcome? So same type of thing. It's like you're debugging an explanation when you are trying to figure out what's going on. Now, debunking is kind of like falsifying things, but what how debunking would relate to debugging is that when you're de, debugging something, you're figuring out what the bugs are. You come up with all these hypotheses. You come up with all these theories. The I don't know. I guess video game conspiracy theories for why the bug happened. I guess might be a way of putting it. Uh, so you think, well, maybe it was because the artist like made a mistake when and used quads instead of triangles in in. Uh, in the 3D program. So you go and check to see that. You see, gee, is that what actually happened? And if it uh, if it did happen, then yeah. you've figured it out. If it didn't happen, you move on to the next thing. So that's uh, that's what I do with, with de- debunking now. I uh, try to figure out, is this hypothesis that someone has put forward, this conspiracy theory, or this, this theory uh, viable, does it actually work? And if it doesn't, why not? And then what might be a better explanation?
0: Well, I gotta tell you, I mean, I was stoked to have you on just due to the debunking that you do, but I'm equally as stoked to find out that you were intimately involved with programming the Tony Hawk games, because those were some of my absolute favorite games. (laughs) Growing, I spent hours and hours and hours playing those games, man. Were you involved in selecting the soundtracks at all for those? Uh,
1: Not really, no. (laughs) I remember, uh, I think it was Tony Hawk 3, uh that was the one was it the ace of spades uh, with motorhead I think it's the, the the intro song uh yeah yeah uh we, there was a big dispute there because i was really pushing for the number of the beast by iron maiden at the time <laughs> but Joel Joel wanted to have uh he wanted to have the ace of spades and so we we went back and forth on this and eventually we got the whole company together and we all voted we played both songs and we voted and I think there was like thirty people or so at the company there, and I think there was twenty-seven people voted for the number of the beast, and three people voted for the Ace of Spades. One of which was Joel, and uh, we ended up doing the Ace of Spades.
0: <laughs> How does that work out scientifically? <laughs>
1: so NeverSoft was not a democracy. It doesn't sound <laughs> but like. That. it was. It was still a good. It was a good call. It would have worked well with either one, but I think that song actually fit fit a bit better. Because uh, it was it's a much more driven song. The the tempo of it fits the game a lot better.
0: Yeah. Plus, you may have gotten some kickback from the moms and dads of suburban Indeed. America yeah. with six six six, the number of the beast, blaring over because, their children's uh, radio.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think we've probably had some songs which were dubious, but it was the uh, it was going to be the uh, the song that boots up when you when you start the game. Yeah, when you when you put the disc into the machine and start playing it. So yeah, I guess probably the Activision probably has something to say about that as well.
0: There was a band called The Ernie's that did a song called Here and Now. I think it was the original Tony Hawk. But they were one of like the cool Yeah, they had a lot of great bands. Goldfinger, Suicide Machines, Mill and mm-hmm. Colin. Um, but the Ernie's was this like super cool kind of jazz-infused ska uh kind of mesh of all these different genres. And they had an album called Mason Ray that that song Here and Now uh, was from. And if you guys look it up on YouTube, The Ernie's Here and Now, you'll probably recognize the song if you played Tony Hawk Pro Skater. But that was just like, I remember that game introduced me to that album, and that was just yeah. like one of the most badass albums. I still fucking listen to it all the time. So... Lots yeah, there's a great good documentary.
1: Memories. There's a documentary out now called "Pretending I'm a Superman," which is about the, the history of the Tony Hawk video game, uh, like how how it got started. And they talked to one of the bands, I think it's Goldfinger, in there about how uh, they were playing some place. I don't know where it was, like in Germany or something like that. And they they were playing their regular stuff, and the the audience was okay. But then they they played the song that was uh, that was in Tony Hawk. Superman. And, yeah, and everybody everybody recognized it. Yeah, they definitely go. It's like the, the yeah they were they became what they were because of Tony Hawk, because uh, it was such a popular uh, outlet for the music at the time.
0: And that was just a bad ass song selection too. I was listening to Goldfinger. Yeah back then and superman was such a cool song because it was like really them doing pure ska and you know it had the horns and it was just like one of these yeah you sit there and you're playing and you're sweating and you know you're drinking your mountain dew or whatever and just uh (laughs) you know with your cheetah print hair like i had and uh and just rocking a goldfinger man that was that was the best (laughs) and it really was
1: yeah, I was I was a bit more straight back then, but uh, yeah, I think we had some of the bands, uh, at least one of them, come and play at one of our Christmas parties. We always had a rap party around Christmas, uh, around the holidays.
0: The lead singer for Goldfinger, John Feldman, who writes all of their music too, I think, he is like one of the most under-the-radar, like best producers in the world. Goldfinger is this kind of like, even now, today, there's still kind of like this little... You know, in the punk community, they're legends, but uh, but they're not you know, super well-known everywhere. But he kind of under the radar has produced some of the biggest albums, I think, over the last like decade or two. Like he's produced for like Pink and like all these pop stars that people would never uh, assume that he would be writing and producing for. Did you ever get a chance to meet him or No.
1: I don't think so. Now I, I wasn't that uh, involved with the music. Uh, there was plenty of other people to do that. I would. Uh, <laughs> I think my big battle trying to get the number of the beast on was, uh, <laughs> was the, the, the most involvement I had.
0: So let's uh, let's talk about conspiracy theories. Of course, um, indeed, one of the reasons that I have you on. The first question I have for you is. You know, I was saying in the introduction, Mick, I consider myself to be somewhat of a skeptic as well, too. I probably um, probably lend some credence to some theories more so than you would. But mm-hmm. it kind of led me to the first question I want to ask you, which is out of all of the conspiracy theories that you have studied and out of all of the claims that people have made about everything uh, that are outside of the you know, outside of the normally accepted explanation for things is there anything are there any conspiracy theories that you have looked at that have any shred of potentially being truthful Mm -hmm. if you had to pick one what, what would you most you know, most kind of I right. agree with, but, but go with if you had to.
1: Well, uh, that's a question you could ask anyone, and they would be able to tell you a conspiracy theory that they believe in, because conspiracies are real. Like everyone, everyone knows that uh, politicians are corrupt. We know that people in power are, uh, a lot of them are very self-serving. They're just doing things for themselves and their friends and family. And we know that corruption has happened in the past and, you know, quite high levels. You think of, like, at the very least, Watergate. Uh, so you know these things happen. And it wouldn't be surprising, if, and indeed it would be expected that these things continue to happen. But you've got to look at conspiracy theories as, as lying on a spectrum. They're not. You can't just, like, say, do you believe in conspiracy theories or not believe in conspiracy theories, because right. everybody believes in some kind of conspiracy theory. Like, I would believe at a simple level that the the prison lobby is working with certain politicians to try to uh, increase or keep sentencing guidelines high so they can keep more people in prison. Well, you know, I, w- I would consider that to be a, a conspiracy. Is it a conspiracy theory? Yeah, They might say it is. People who are denying something are going to say, oh, that's just a conspiracy theory. We never do that. We've got your best interests at heart but yeah it seems quite quite self evident that uh people in congress uh take lobbyist money in exchange for favorable positions on legislation yeah you people the big big agra uh big big farmer the the military industrial complex they all donate to politicians they all have lobbyists who try to influence legislation and even in some cases write legislation and uh, essentially they are conspiring with with politicians a lot of it is kind of like tacit you know if some of you pat my back I'll pat yours but some of it is actually quite explicit and that people have received bribes and people have gone to jail so we know that it actually happens and we're just seeing you know, perhaps not the surface of it but we're, we're seeing uh, a manifestation of those conspiracies. So if you're asking me which conspiracy theories I believe in, you're probably looking for things like, you know, do I believe in the, the let it happen theory of 9-11? Or, you know, do I believe, I don't know, like the global warming is a hoax. But these are things that exist somewhere on a spectrum. And, and even on that spectrum, they're kind of spread out in there. there's various versions of each conspiracy theory. And my belief position on the conspiracy spectrum is pretty low down. It's like out of 10, it's probably something like a one and a half but I do believe that, that people do conspire and especially in, in the form of government corruption and especially in the case of uh, lobbyists influencing l- legislation. And I think that's perhaps one of the most important conspiracy theories out there because it's actually probably largely real and that people in power do take money yeah. and it's corrupting, it's corrupting the democracy.
0: I agree with you there 100%. And, you know, I'm a business analyst, so I analyze businesses. And that's all we see, especially when we're trying to debunk a company that people think is performing better than, uh, you know, better than expected. Oftentimes, it leads back to a loophole or it leads back to a lobbying scheme or it leads back to a kickback scheme like you're talking about. So... I think you're dead on there, and I would go so far as to say I don't even think those are conspiracy theories. I think that's just, I unfortunately, I think that's how business is done. Yeah. Uh, to be frank with you, I mean, out of the, out of the major conspiracy theories, though, what what has given <laughs> you what has given you pause when you've gone to debunk it? Well,
1: there's some things that you can't debunk because the information surrounding them is is inaccessible like we don't know what bush knew about 911 before it happened like uh, to what extent was he warned that something was going to happen was it just he got that one memo saying bin laden determined to attack the united states did he even see that was there more detail uh, were there things going on like like uh, terrorists being allowed into the country in the hope that they would do something yeah perhaps there was like rogue elements within the CIA that decided like oh well it might be good for the country if we had an attack so I'll just let this guy in and it'll set a bomb off somewhere and then we can invade invade Iran so you know there's there's things that you can't actually debunk because there's no way of knowing and they are possible if not entirely plausible they're certainly possible uh, but yeah if you if you if you just want to Rattle off a list of conspiracy theories like chemtrails, like 9 11 moon landing hoax, the world is flat, uh, the queen is a child eating <laughs> alien. Uh, or, you know, I generally do not, don't, I've not really found any evidence to support any of those. And some of them are obviously completely wrong, like the flat earth theory. But, you know, lower down, uh, Big Pharma lying about test results. Is that a conspiracy theory? You might think that these are, these are things that are so obviously true that you wouldn't consider them to be a conspiracy theory, but other people would. Other people would say, oh, that's just a conspiracy theory. So we all kind of draw the line somewhere, and where we draw that line, everything on one side of the line seems very, very reasonable. Like the conspiracy theories that you personally believe to be true, you don't really consider them to be even conspiracy theories because you think of them as things that are self-evidently true. But things on the other side of the line, they're just... Yeah, silly conspiracy theories, and then there's a bit of a gray area around the middle.
0: Yeah, let's talk for a second. Uh, let's talk for a second about nine eleven. Sure. Um, and you know, I think you make some great points. There are a lot of again, whether you find this to be true or not through your conversation with me, but I do. I consider myself to be a skeptic, and I, you know, very quickly and deftly write off things like oh the queen is a lizard or the earth is <laughs> flat or you know I actually had a guy email me yesterday too I guess I told somebody you were coming on you know get me on with Mick West I I can prove the earth is flat I'm like, all right you know t- take a walk and uh I, you know I generally write those off very deftly and very quickly and when it comes to nine eleven, you know I know direct evidence is the, you know, direct primary source evidence is where it's at. And mm-hmm. when I look at something like Building 7, and right. I, I look at how the... And I've watched your debates on this. I've watched that really long one you did on somebody else's podcast that was like two hours, and I've listened to you talk about it on uh, on a couple other various podcasts. But when I look at the building collapse and I just try to, in my head, make sense mm-hmm. of, you know, as Dave Collum, the the chemistry professor from Cornell would say on my podcast, you know, the, the, the chaos theory, the fact that all three of the buildings would come down exactly the same way and hm. that a steel-framed building would uh, collapse due to fire for, you know, the first time and kind of uniformly like that, and that all these other interesting little circumstantial evidentiary nuggets floating around of people saying all right well it's going to come down before it came down the sounds of explosions before it came down you have Silverstein Mm -hmm. on the tape saying oh we're going to pull it you Mm -hmm. have uh the BBC reporting that the building had fallen before it had fallen do any of those do any of those give you pause at all no,
1: because I've looked into them all in great depth, and I've you know done my little debunking what is the root cause of these things. And I've you know, figured out uh, in most most of the cases, like what's going on there, like the the woman who uh, the reporter from the BBC who reported that the building had fallen down, that was a perfectly understandable mistake because they had been reporting before that that it was going to fall down. And then she didn't actually report that it had fallen down. She, I think it was the reporter kind of handed it off to you, off to her, and like the producer like told her in area that it had fallen down. But then she she did uh, like a little thing on the BBC years later explaining what had happened and how it was just 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 like you know the confusion of the day, and it was a news story that uh, uh, well, it wasn't even a news story. It was just it was just they were reporting on things.
0: Why would, I mean, you they, remember. Why would they be reporting beforehand though that the building was going to come down? No plane, the, had, no plane had hit that building, and no other steel frame skyscraper had come well, down due to the fire. So what would yeah, what no, would no. give them so much uh, gusto to come out and say, and even the, on the ground, the first responders saying, look out, that building's coming down soon?
1: Well, you've got your answer right there. Those are the two things. The, the newspaper people, or the, so the news media, is saying it's going to come down because the firefighters are saying mm-hmm. it's coming down, and the firefighters are saying it's coming down because they've been pulled away. They've been pulled out from the perimeter, Uh, and they've let the building to burn. And they were there and they saw that the building was like kind of this big gash in the uh, southwest side. And apparently it looked like it was leaning, but it's hard to tell whether it was or not. Uh, And they'd stopped firefighting because of the risk of collapse. I mean, that's why they pulled out. So if there's a risk of collapse, then it's perfectly reasonable to expect that it it is going to collapse. Uh, And, you know, if they were actually there on the ground and they're hearing all these the girders and things falling down inside the building occasionally and creaking and and groaning and the building like uh, swaying, then uh, yeah, they they thought it was going to collapse. The media's out there. It's not like they had much control over reporters or anything out there. They're talking to everybody. And uh, they get the story that they think that building is gonna collapse. There was another building that they thought was gonna collapse, uh, which didn't. But they were, and they were reporting on that as well. And actually at some point, I think they did report no, they didn't report it had collapsed but uh i think later like some guy confused one building with another and he he said like yeah i was standing in the shadow of this huge building and then it collapsed but yeah there was a lot of confusion is the point sure uh, they no no one even knew what building was what no one's going to be saying building seven like right now we're intimately familiar with with the buildings especially if you've uh spent any time looking into the theory uh, but at the time, you know, the firemen who arrived at the building, they're like, which tower is this? Like, is this the North Tower or the South Tower? And the guy has to write on the desk, yeah, this is, the, this is Building 1. Uh, and they, they weren't referring to Building 7 as Building 7. They call it the Solomon Smith Barney Building. So it, it, it's, not like it's not like they have today's context back then. Right. You know, back, back then, they'd just seen both buildings collapse, the World Trade Centers 1 and 2, they thought that up to like ten thousand people are just being killed, uh, and and so they were extremely motivated to prevent anything like that from happening again. So they want they don't want people to die, and they think yeah you know, they just saw two buildings collapse. It's perfectly reasonable to think another building might collapse, especially if it's making all these weird noises, and so the the word gets out.
0: Yeah, there's nothing about the. Th- fact that the three buildings collapsed though <laughs> in, in similar fashion
1: no that... they didn't though
0: <laughs> Go ahead. How, how
1: is the collapse of the towers in any way similar to, to the collapse of building 7 it's completely and utterly different but the towers collapsed because planes flew into the tops of the buildings right. and then the two towers collapsed from the top down you saw the top portion of the building going boom 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 through the lower portion of the building Building seven collapsed from the bottom up at the bottom of the building buckled It's behind the, the, the buildings in the video. So you can't see it. Right. And then the building fell down. So it resembles a controlled demolition. The towers do not resemble in any way whatsoever a controlled demolition using explosives.
0: The, the back end and what you're talking about is for people that watch the they watch building seven come down in that video that everybody's seen if you look like when the penthouse starts to dip on the other it's the other side of the building right that you're talking about that collapses first
1: well actually no it's the inside of the building that collapses first and this is you know it's something that's it's difficult for people to wrap their head around because you look at the building and you see this video of it collapsing it looks straight down and it looks like it's a controlled demolition because it, it resembles other controlled demolitions, because the way you do control demolition is that you, first of all, you spend a few weeks or months weakening the building and taking out all the asbestos and whatnot. And then you rig it with explosives, but you rig it uh, at the bottom of the building. Right. You don't, you don't blow up a bit at the top and then let let that crush uh, right. Bottom, holder. Right. there is actually a, there is actually a technique that does that without explosives, but we can talk about that later. But uh, the way people usually demolish buildings is by essentially kicking out the legs from under the building and then letting it collapse. And uh, so you would you would blow out the columns at the bottom of the building. So it it seems. It seems very straightforward when you look at it and say, oh, that looks like a controlled demolition, so therefore that must be what it is, because it just resembles other controlled demolitions, and it seems very straightforward. But the reality is a bit more complicated. What actually happens, if you study the sequence of events, is much more complicated. And I think this is what, this is what allows people to kind of jump for the simpler explanation, because the real explanation, when you get into it, is is kind of complicated. And when I explain it, it involves uh kind of analogies that people don't like because they they don't they don't work to scale but like let let me let me give you an explanation of what happened to building seven um it was on fire because building one which is the north tower had fallen like uh, one block to the south of it and basically had taken out most of the windows on the south side taking out a large chunk of one corner column uh, and uh, poss- possibly more columns is hard to see because of all the smoke coming out. And the smoke was coming out because the building was, was uh, on fire. Now, you often see these pictures where it looks like a small fire, but uh, you know, it's a big building. And so a single floor being on fire is actually a huge, enormous inferno. And it was actually several, several floors that were on fire uh, and over a long period of time, many hours. So what seems to have happened is that uh, the fires in the the east side of the building weakened floors around uh, one particular column, column 79, which isn't just like a random column. It is the column that supported the biggest load in the entire building. And it's also the column that was furthest away from any wall. So it had the longest uh, distance to go from the column to to a wall. So uh, if any column was going to fail, it was probably going to be that one. So uh, fires are damaging the floors around this one column. The Eventually, what happens is that enough connections get damaged, usually by thermal expansion, which is when a, 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 car, a, a girder gets longer because it gets heated up. And that pushes the connections and breaks the connections and pushes them either fully or partially off, off the seated connections that they have. And then these fall. So you've got things falling down. And it probably happened a few times before it became this uh, this runaway collapse. And at some point, a fall happens that makes floors start to knock out one another. And this strips away, a bunch of floors away from this one column, this column 79, which is the one that has this biggest load on. It's furthest away from all the walls. And this column is now unsupported on either side. And you get this, this um, phenomenon called slender column buckling. Which is uh, it's a fairly straightforward thing. The the longer a column is, like the harder it is for it to. Uh, you want to um, give the
0: dog a treat? <laughs>
1: yeah, let me just, uh, give, let him me just bump. Come back give him a bone. Give him something to gnaw.
0: Give him a shot of whiskey. This is like the time Peter Schiff screamed at his dogs in the middle of the podcast. Dogs hate my podcast, like people. Alrighty. All right. Uh,
1: continuing my, my explanation. Uh, basically, the floors around this one column collapse. You've got a skinny column now. Columns that are not supported by the side will fail. And this one column uh, did fail. And we know this happened. We know at least that the column failed at some point along its length because uh, we can see the penthouse collapse. The penthouse was directly above this one column. So we know that that column had to be, you know, removed somehow, and it matches, you know, matches the fires more or less on that side of the building. Uh, sorry, I had to run upstairs with my dog. That's
0: <laughs> all right. Take your time. Uh,
1: and and then then we see that you know, that penthouse has collapsed, which means that that column and the two columns behind it have collapsed. Then we see the collapse going kind to of progress across the roof. We see the the other penthouse further along that starts to collapse as well. And then you see the entire building collapses. So what's actually happening is the inside of the building, the columns on the inside of the building, so you can divide any building into its exterior columns, which are you know on the outside walls and the interior columns. Now, if you take out all the interior columns of a building, you're left with a structure that's kind of like a tin can,
0: all right. you've
1: got is the exterior. And that's kind of what happened with the World Trade Center Building 7 is that the interior collapsed, and that kind of just left all these exterior columns, which were very, very strong.
0: All of those interior columns had had collapsed? All of them?
1: They were either collapsed or in the process of being collapsed. There was only, uh, I think, about 12 or 15 or so of them. You can right. look at the map of the, the thing.
0: It's just odd that the building comes down in what appears to be mm. a very uniform fashion. You know, if, if yeah. part of the building had... Slumped over because listen, that the fire obviously right. doesn't burn uniformly throughout a floor, so you would expect there to be uh, weakened parts of the structure in one part of the sure, building sure. that are you know weaker than other parts, and that you would kind of expect some lopsidedness or something to look something to look wonky. No, in you in some you way, totally right?
1: you, you totally would expect that. I mean, it's, it, you would you know, if you. If you didn't run a uh, finite element analysis uh, of uh, you know, nonlinear dynamic analysis, then yeah, you expect that. But when you do actually do the steps of uh, uh, of simulating what would happen in the building, then this is what happens: the interior collapses first. Then you're left with the exterior. Now, the exterior of the building that doesn't just you know collapse uh, one part at a time. What's what's happened when you you've removed the interior? is now your exterior is, is not supported uh, by the floors on the inside. So you've got right. this slender column thing. Uh, so it's, it's very susceptible to sudden buckling. And you've got this thing called load transfer, which is an important concept in all the collapses. Like if, if a building has a whole bunch of columns and one column collapses, then usually what happens is the load that that column was uh, carrying is transferred to adjacent columns. And uh, and they, because there's this margin of error built in, uh, this safety margin, they they can normally carry that load. So most of the time, when you take out one column of something, it's not going to collapse. Uh, with, uh, but what what happens here is that the exterior of the building gets pushed far beyond this uh, safety margin. So when one column in that collapses, it just causes this almost instant chain reaction like a zipper going around the entire building. It collapses, the ones next to it starts to immediately collapse, and because they've started to collapse, the ones next to them start to collapse, and each time it gets more and more and more load being transferred to the other columns, and so the, the collapse of those adjacent columns accelerates all the way around the building. And it doesn't. It's not actually a perfectly symmetrical collapse, it does actually tilt over a bit towards the south, and you can see this in the videos from, uh, from the other, uh, other angles. But, yeah, it's, uh, it's kind of like, you know, you stand on a soda can. Uh, I don't know how heavy you are, but, you know, when you were, when you were younger, you could probably balance on a soda can uh, without it collapsing and then just kind of kick, uh, kick it behind it or hit it with a, a stick or something, and it would just suddenly collapse straight down. Right. It doesn't, doesn't slowly fold over to one side. Uh, so you've kind of got the same thing going on with World Trade Center Building 7. And that soda can analogy is one that uh, people don't like because they say, oh, well, it's not the same as the soda can. But uh, there you've got this issue now of explaining the issues of scale and how things don't scale, and you've got this thing called the square cube law, and it gets very complicated. So, like I say, it's easier for people to go for, oh, it looks like controlled demolition, therefore it must be controlled demolition,
0: well, even, rather than <coughs> to even, it, even to, to, to go one step, the real. Even to go one step further, though, and even... Just listening to that explanation, you know, I still the mm-hmm. idea that the that the inside of the building could be, you know, that the the soda can argument argues that you know all of the inside resistance is taken out essentially and is done away with, and like you said, you're left kind of with this with this tin can. Um, but the what's difficult for me to wrap my head around is the idea that all of those internal columns whether there's 12 Mm -hmm. or 15 were weakened uh symmetrically enough for it
1: wasn't it wasn't symmetrical Uh, it was very asymmetrical the interior collapse you you see this uh the penthouse collapsing Mm -hmm. and at that point only three columns had failed and then probably by the time the penthouse has got halfway down the middle of the building the columns next to that are starting to collapse. The three columns, it's a range, I think, three by five or three by six. Uh, and then the ones further over collapse. And you can kind of see this progress along the roof line. You can see the uh, the structure next to that p- big penthouse starts to collapse. It's a shield wall in front of some air conditioning unit. Uh, and then finally, I think the, there's another penthouse at the other end and it starts to go down just before the roof line starts to go down. So it takes a few seconds. For the interior of the building to, for the collapse to proceed from one side to the other, but then once the entire interior of the building is no longer supporting anything, and it's no longer supporting the floors which would press out against the exterior, then the exterior can uh, can crumple at the base, as I said, and then fall straight down.
0: So, what's your take on the uh, Professor Halsey uh, study from University of Fairbanks?
1: I think it's it's. Uh, it's not very good <laughs> uh, to be to be diplomatic thing is here nist did a simulation which is called a um, nonlinear dynamic simulation so there's two two things in there it's nonlinear and it's dynamic nonlinear means that when you bend something its response changes like if you or if you pull something uh, like a, a good or something and stretch it out its response changes. Uh, so at some point it will fail or it'll will, it will, it'll give a, a different type of uh, reaction, different kind of, of, of response to a load. Uh, dynamic means that things move. So when a building is collapsing, you can imagine girders fall, columns bang against each other, floors fall and hit other floors, uh, stripping them away from columns. So if you want to do a real simulation of 9-11, of World Trade Center Building 7, you need to do this nonlinear dynamic simulation. And Halsey didn't do that. He did a linear static simulation. And this is essentially the wrong type of simulation to do. Linear static is what you do when you want to see how a building will respond to something being removed. It's basically telling you if it will start to move in a certain direction. Uh, so it sounds like you know you could use it to you could take out this column and then you could see what would happen. But just taking out one column isn't what happened on with Building Seven. You had these uh, columns falling and hitting things like other floors and other columns, and you had uh, which is the dynamic aspect of it, and then you have the nonlinear aspect of it. Halsey essentially used what's called a linear analysis, which kind of just simulates everything as, as springs. Just a very simple Hooke's Law spring, you've got right. a, a certain extension will give a certain uh, uh, force in the opposite direction. And uh, it's, it, it, it was completely inappropriate for the situation that we we're doing. He did these other simulations where he tried to show that the building should have uh, tilted over to one side and he did it by using successive applications of this uh, static linear analysis. So we would do one static linear analysis, see where that left him. Then he would take out any columns that uh, had failed. Then he would do another static linear analysis, see where that led him. But the problem with that is that it doesn't account for what's actually happening during the time steps between those analyses. Uh, and what's, what's, what happens in, in his interpretation of it is the, the building pivots on uh, you know, a fulcrum, essentially. Some of the columns act as a fulcrum and make the, the building pivot, but they're only doing it in his analysis because he doesn't remove things until the end of the time step. So he allowed a bunch of the columns to go, I think about 20 times past their actual uh, design load and act as a fulcrum, when they would have actually just collapsed. Right. Build- buildings tend to collapse, large buildings tend to collapse straight down because individual elements are not strong enough for a building to pivot. You see buildings like do this kind of tip over sometimes, but they're usually concrete, reinforced concrete, which is this very rigid structure. It's very different to a, uh, a long span steel frame structure, which is what we had with, with Building 7. And there's, there's a whole bunch of other, other problems. Uh, with his analysis, but you know, those, those were the main ones that he, he used this, this static uh, linear analysis instead of a dynamic one. And he said he didn't. Yeah, I think I talked to someone on um, Architects and Engineers for 911 Truth. I was trying to get them to address this. And they said they didn't do it because it would have been too much work. It, you know, it takes too long to run the simulations. But NIST did it. NIST actually did this, this uh, dynamic nonlinear analysis, and they said it took them, I think, like uh, three weeks per run. So they would, they would set up the building a certain way. They would press go. They would come back three weeks later. You know, they're probably doing other things in the meantime, but that, to run the analysis, it took forever. Holsey didn't have the resources that NIST did. Yeah, you know, he probably has slightly better computers nowadays, but he basically had two graduate students do all this work for him—two Chinese graduate students. One of them uh, went back to China; another one now works in like local government's uh, civil engineering department somewhere. And they were the ones who did all this uh, this simulation—you know, building it from the ground up—and they didn't really know what they were doing. They didn't have any experience in doing this type of thing before, uh, and you can kind of see this in in the data dump that they they give. They actually released like a lot of the data, if not all of it, and you can see all these these videos in it. I think someone did a compilation of all the videos that are in there, and there is some some ridiculous, uh, stretchy, bendy figures with the uh, pieces going everywhere. Uh, you know, and, and I could go into lots more detail on the the individual problems in the report, but really, the you know, bottom line is, it's not a very good report, and. Unfortunately, because of the topic, because it's a topic that most uh, engineers think is just ridiculous and not worth dealing with, you're probably not gonna get a, a good rebuttal of it because no one's gonna be taking the time to go through it in, in great detail. So we're kind of left with this unfortunate situation where you've got this Halsey report, Architects and Engineers for nine eleven Truth is waving it around. Most people think it's ridiculous, but then some people are gonna get taken in by it.
0: Would, uh, would you come on this podcast and, and debate or have a civil conversation with uh, architects and engineers or Dr. Halsey, if I can get sure. them on?
1: Yeah, I'd love to talk to Dr. Halsey. That'd be awesome.
0: Um, follow-up question. What is the debunker's take on the reason why we don't have video footage clearly identifying a commercial airliner hitting the Pentagon?
1: Because most security cameras point at the ground, they don't point at the sky.
0: Yeah, but uh, assuming the plane came in the way that people said that it did, which was very low to the ground, on that type of approach, Mm -hmm. there is a group of people that believe that there should be something that identifies the fact that it's. I've heard witness statements the guys that were standing at the gas station uh, across the street from where it happened saying you know it was very clearly a commercial airliner but I've also heard people say oh it was a Gulfstream jet it was you know a smaller business type jet they identified and then we have this peculiar incident where we have these two cameras that are pointed at that section of the building and have you ever seen the frame-by-frame analysis of those two cameras it's in like uh, Massimo Mizuko's documentary or no?
1: The two cameras that are in the, the parking uh, booth. yeah yeah well I haven't seen the frame by frame analysis but I've seen some frame by frame there's one where there's a guy who matches it up to a simulation like a 3d simulation and it seems to seems to fit pretty good.
0: No there is a analysis of both of those cameras they uh-huh. on they're on slightly different angles and yeah. they match the two cameras up and all of the frames are 100% consistent with one another but for this 23rd frame in the analysis where it shows uh, part of the tail of the plane where it should be showing the nose or vice versa and they you know they perform like these boolean subtractions mm-hmm. on the on the video and and f- make it seem as though the video has been altered in some way right. and i'd be interested well, in your take on that if i sent, <laughs> sent it to you
1: i yeah i haven't seen it but i would i would certainly put money on it being bullshit because if it wasn't
0: how can you say that it's bullshit without looking at it yet though
1: i, I i'm just putting money on it based on my experience of similar things <laughs> i uh would you like to take the bet
0: no because i don't really know <laughs> i don't know enough about it to I find it interesting the way yeah. that Mizuko presents it in this documentary, which is called uh, September, no, September 11th, The New Pearl Harbor. The way he presents it in that documentary is, to the best of my understanding, look, I have a limited background in technology. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm not the smartest guy in the world, but I'm not the dumbest. The way that he reasons it and presents it seems relatively sure. legitimate to me, but right. I'm not an expert. But-
1: but imagine like imagine if you were on a jury of a murder trial and you go into the, uh, the the prosecution comes in and they make their case and that's all you listen to. You're probably gonna find the guy guilty. Of course. You've only listened to which one is time. why I'm asking you. Yeah. But then we have this problem which I, I you know kind of raised earlier, in the most people who are kind of experts in this type of thing. Don't really want to give it the time of day because they think it's ridiculous, which gives this false illusion that that uh, that the conspiracy theorists have all the engineers and all the scientists on their side. Uh, they don't. They just have the ones that are kind of willing to go there. Sure. Like if you if you actually pay some video analyst to to look at this this thing and see, yeah, you know, does does this tail match up or whatever, then yeah, you could probably get um, you know you could probably get the correct answer. I'll, I'll look at it later, and I could. Uh, if That's I have the why time. I
0: have Mick West on my and, uh, podcast, <laughs> and why I'm asking him, because this it is, sounds this familiar.
1: Is... But I, I'm not sure if we've we've looked at it before. It's one of those old things. Yeah, you know, it's a problem with 9/11. A lot of this stuff is is old, and the the claims get stagnant, and the debunkings get stagnant. I think there's like one of the 9/11 debunking sites, like 9/11 myths or something like that, just went off off the air recently. Off, well, I'm gonna offline. make a
0: note. I'm gonna make a note to send that to you. I'm making yeah, a list here. Things for Mick Wesson. That's number one, <laughs> and uh, I'll send you the timestamp on the video too, because it's like a four-hour documentary, so you can see exactly right. where I'm talking about. And and it's a four-hour documentary based largely on circumstantial evidence. You know, it's uh, it paints a picture using circumstantial evidence. It's just an interesting. Yeah, yeah. I still find those types of presentations to be interesting because I do believe there are things that have happened in the past. That we don't have direct or primary source evidence from, but that doesn't mean that they didn't happen. And so I, I think just as it's important to hear, you know, their case on it. I want to hear yours as well, which is which is why I'm so excited to have you here. Have you ever looked at the cell phone calls made from the plane?
1: Yes, I have. Yeah. T- talk to and- me about that they were not cell phone calls they were airphone calls
0: one of them and was a we, cell phone call though was it not yeah
1: the one like right at the end when they were flying low over new york like they said i could see buildings i think was the the quote from uh, that what was going on there but yeah the the calls that were made were not cell phone calls uh you know, except for a very few of them they were they were all made from the seatback back belt. and we have we have the records that demonstrate this this is all in the investigation I think in the I'm not sure if it's in the FEMA report, but yeah, you know, it's certainly somewhere it exists. You can you can look it up.
0: Even the cell phone calls, what altitude were they made from?
1: Uh, well, it would have been uh, I don't know how how high they came in at that point. Probably like two three thousand feet, which is less than a mile.
0: It's yeah, it's just it's very peculiar. The airphone explanation makes a lot of sense. So you
1: you, you can make a phone call a mile away from a cell phone tower. You can make one like several miles away from a cell phone tower.
0: Yeah, but anybody that's flown knows that it's a very, very short amount of time before you leave the ground. And this is in 2020. It's a very short amount of time before you leave the ground that you're unable to make phone calls.
1: Hmm, I must admit I've never actually tried to make a phone call. When did you try this?
0: Oh, I've tried it a bunch of times. And not well, only well, not only because which airport? I, I well, I fly all the time, so I, I've right. tried it at numerous international airports. Number one, uh, and and not just because, um, not because of this, but also just because um you know, the phone's the only thing I have to pay attention to. So I see exactly when I get service. I see exactly when I get bars. Um, if you have, if you're not getting Wi-Fi on the flight, all of your mm-hmm. incoming notifications start to ping through that you've missed while you're in the air. And so when those come through, it's really the first indication that you're getting service and data is reaching right. your phone. And that doesn't happen until you're, you know, very, very close to being on the ground.
1: Yeah, the, yeah they were flying low over the ground when they were coming into to New York. But
0: even then, we're talking, we're talking 20 years ago, right? We're talking cell phone sure, technology yeah. from 20 years ago.
1: Well, the thing is, like, cell phone technology has changed now. So you have a much denser uh, array of cells uh, this is why even with you know, going to 5G that's why they have to put 5G things everywhere because the range actually diminishes uh, so old older cell phones actually broadcast at a much higher power rate which is why they had to have those huge batteries uh, because they, they needed to be able to connect to cell phone towers which are fewer and far between and uh, use, use higher power
0: did you ever listen to the end of that C.C. Lyle's call where she whispers something into the phone there at the end or whispers something to somebody next to her?
1: Uh, no. Well, I, I might have done.
0: The conspiracy uh, theorists claim that she's saying it's a frame. She uh, she makes a phone call, and I'm going to get the records to these calls mm-hmm. too because I want to find out which ones were cell and which ones are air phones. I'm going to give them to you also. <sighs> Um, but there was one of these calls made by this woman, CC Lyles, and before the connection drops, uh, she's heard whispering something. It sounds like it's a frame,
1: you know. You yeah, can't. Yeah, the pro- there's there's a problem with that type of thing, though. It's, it's this thing. Um, I don't know. It's uh, I can't remember the word for it, but basically, it's, it's prompting. If you put subtitles under something, right? Then, if it's a, li- a little bit indistinct. Uh, it will sound like what's in those subtitles.
0: Oh, sure. And I'm not claiming that's what she said. I wanted to just get your take on it if you had heard it. I would have been interested you know, I, in knowing I, I, what I you thought it was. I haven't
1: heard it. But, you know, the way to kind of approach that would be to find a bunch of people who haven't heard it who aren't familiar with it and make them listen to the audio without the subtitle. Correct. And and see what, what, what they think uh, she actually says. And then you could perhaps give them the context of her, uh, you know, what's going on, and say, what might she be saying in this situation? Like, is she saying, it's a frame, or is she saying, I'm afraid?
0: People, Yeah, people think she said, you did great. People think maybe it's somebody next yeah. to her whispering to her, you did great. Um, but all right, well, you that's,
1: could pr- go ahead. You could probably like do all of those uh, as subtitles, and you'll probably get in each one with each particular subtitle, you get everybody in your sample set would say, oh, that's what she's saying. Because mm-hmm. it sounds, yeah, you. Because of this prompting problem, it's really a it's a very mm, disingenuous thing I think for people to actually uh, do these things put put the subtitles in, uh, next to uh, audio because it, you can't help yourself. I, I did I uh, I posted a, a great example of this years ago which was there's a British show called Songs of Praise, which is basically just people singing in church, and somebody uh, put some subtitles underneath it which were just completely ridiculous <laughs> random nonsense
0: and it's
1: it, it sounds exactly like the subtitles right but it's not if you do, if, if you don't look at the <laughs> subtitles it's like praise o lord the thou art redeemer and in the subtitles, it's I don't know whatever it is. I'll have uh, a bologna
0: sandwich. right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no,
1: I mean it's something that sounds phonetically similar, but it, it's something that's very, very different. So it's really, really easy to to trick the ear with uh, things like that. So I really wouldn't read anything into that.
0: Well, no, and and going into that, I'm slightly aware of that type of prompting, confirmation bias, whatever you want to call it, as well. And so I've I've tried to do that, and I'm not yeah. even sure. I'm not sure that they subtitle it. In the video, I think they give you the audio right, first, the- and then they, you know, then mm. they talk about it. So yeah, I'd be interested right. in your take on it, regardless. Sure, it's one sure, of those yeah. things well, that number two. Number yeah, two exactly. The things you're gonna send me. Um, so I'll definitely get you that. I want to talk about the UFO stories that have been happening here over the last sure. couple of weeks. I watched your video debunking the gimbal video, which I thought was really. Mm. Fascinating. I thought you did uh, a a really nice job with that. It was easy to understand. Uh, I thought the way that you, you know, blew up the indicators on the video and made that clear to people and, uh, you know, put the background on the object so people could understand exactly what they were looking at. And also, too, bringing up key points like Fravor's recollection is different from the video that people are being seen. You know, people yeah. will, will, will mash those together if they don't know one is different from the other. Um, I guess the first thing that I want to talk to you about is, well, I guess just run through this from the top, I guess. For the for the listener hmm. that's read the New York Times story, which I saw had has now been corrected to some degree, that said, okay. oh, there's otherworldly... There's otherworldly UFOs here, and they've seen the Pentagon released videos, the Tic Tac videos. Take them from the top, Mick.
1: Well, it's a big, big topic. Yeah, uh, you know, the there was this New York Times story, like was the end of 2017, December 2017, by Leslie Keane, uh, Roger Blumenthal, and some other guy, and they basically revealed to the world that uh, you know these videos exist, and uh, I think they 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 sh- they. Put the videos out there. This was going kind to of be in combination with Tom DeLonge and the To the Stars Academy, uh, you know, working, you know, kind of with them in a way. And so there's these three videos, and the claim was that these are videos of unidentified flying objects, which you know, kind of like is true. You can't actually identify what they are exactly, but people started to make claims about. The videos and say that they're really interesting because in the three videos there's one called go fast that looks like something that's flying really really fast and low over the water there's another one called gimbal which looks like a flying saucer which kind of rotates and hovers and then there's another one called fleur or fleer people tell me I'm pronouncing it wrong Fleer one uh, which which relates to this this Nimitz encounter with David Fraver
0: right
1: and you know what what I do because I'm a debunker and a debugger, I try to look at the hard evidence that we have, which are these videos. And I just look at the videos, I try to just look at the videos, and I try to figure out what's going on in these videos. And I use my, my knowledge of 3D graphics and just simple 3D trigonometry to try to figure out where these objects are in, in space and how fast they're moving. And the simplest one was the one labeled go fast. Which the To the Stars Academy and I believe the New York Times article presented as being this really really fast object flying over the surface of the ocean. And then there was the uh, History Channel show Unidentified, where they they said that thing is hauling ass, uh, it's moving at two thirds the speed of sound. Yeah, and they're giving all these superlatives about it, but uh, it actually has all the information there on the screen, and which isn't you know very much. It's just some angles and some distances to allow you to figure out just how high it is and how fast it is. And it turns out it's not high and it's not fast. It's actually, uh, it's not it's not low, right? It's not, it's not close to the water and it's not fast. It's actually uh, halfway between the plane and the ocean. So you're getting this optical illusion of it moving fast. Uh, and then there's the gimbal video. You mentioned the gimbal video. This is the one that's got this rotating thing. And the, the guys, you can hear the audio saying it's rotating. But I think that isn't rotating. I think it's actually just a glare of the aircraft. And then there's something within the camera itself that's rotating, which makes the glare rotate. And I I dug into that in a a lot of detail. I've got these videos that people can check out uh, about that, lots of different videos, because people bring up questions. They say, well, if the glare is rotating because of the camera rotating, then why isn't the horizon rotating? Which I must have heard like a thousand times now. So I made a video explaining why the horizon doesn't rotate. Problem is, it's a little bit complicated. People don't understand the explanation and then they just keep they keep asking me the same question over and over again. <laughs> uh, and then the flirt one is the the one that gets people really excited because that's a video that supposedly are, is associated with an encounter related by Commander David Fraver. And he said that he personally saw this tic-tac shaped object and there was his his uh, we- uh, weapon system operator and another pilot and their weapon system operator uh, also saw it he's the only one who's really given any detailed accounts of it though and uh later after he came back from seeing this this flying tic-tac uh, another plane went out and took this video this fleur video and uh people Claim it's the same thing, and then they claim that the object itself is making these hypersonic maneuvers in the video. So, you know, I can't really analyze what David Fravor saw because all I've got is you know, his account of it, right. and you know, who knows what he actually saw. But you can analyze the video. So, I analyzed the video, uh, figured out what the, the angular speed of the video was, meaning how fast it's panning from, from right to left, which tells you kind of like how fast the object is moving across the sky and then I figured from that what would happen if uh, the camera stopped panning for a second or for a fraction of a second, and we know from that speed how fast it would uh, zip off to the side, and it turns out that uh, when the camera, do- when the object does appear to zip off to the side, it's the exact same speed as if the camera stopped moving, so it seems like the fa- by far the most likely thing is that whenever it moves, whenever the object moves, it's actually the camera moving, or rather the camera stopping moving for a fraction of a second. And then you'd look into it a, a bit deeper, and you can see that every time the camera, every time the object appears to move, something has happened to the camera. Either it's changed lenses to do go from like, um, like uh, a narrow field of view to a wider field of view or vice versa, um, or there's some kind of glitch, or it's doing some kind of gimbal adjustment where it has to rotate the entire camera. So there's this correlation that matches exactly with camera adjustments and then the craft appearing to move. And yet all these supposed scientists uh, from the To The Stars Academy, they think that it's actually doing this weird hypersonic maneuvers, which if you actually analyze the video as I did, and I think I made a pretty compelling case that it isn't actually doing that. It's just some distant thing, probably a distant plane and it's just the camera is tracking it and the guy's fiddling with the camera and each time he fiddles with it, it loses lock for a a fraction of a second. And then at the end of the video, he loses lock completely because he changes the camera too rapidly and the object just uh, drifts out of frame. And that's all there was to it. But then people get all angry at me and saying that I'm denying uh, (laughs) the entirety of the UFO hypothesis or that Uh, I'm personally insulting them because they saw a UFO once. And yeah, me saying this video is...
0: It's funny because so many of these videos you look at and they're just so obviously fake, and these three uh, aren't aren't as obvious of fakes. You know, if you not, if you seen like fakes. the uh, the Skinwalker Ranch yeah. uh, videos where you know it's just a fly in front of the lens and people are like, oh, what's the you know the, the like, there's, yeah. there's lens flares and there's objects and dirt and crap and. You know, there's all these things that need to be taken into account that people never take into it. My, one of my favorite things in the video you did about uh the gimbal video was just explaining the difference in the speed of the object when the zoom changes. And of course when you zoom in on something, yeah. it's gonna make it appear as though it's moving faster than when you zoom out.
1: Yeah, that was the that was actually the fleur video. Oh, was it okay? One. Yeah. Yeah, the fleur one is like kind of the old one from two thousand and four, I think, and then uh Maybe 2000, well, early early 2000s, and then the other two, Go Fast and Gimbal, uh, were shot around the same time in 2014, I think, or 2016, but later, years later, decade later.
0: Yeah, and I saw enough Tom DeLonge on the, his appearance on the Joe Rogan experience the last time he was on to last me for a while, because I don't know if he was on Coke or what, but he was out of his fucking mind, <laughs> on that podcast, I mean, I have never heard. And listen, this is coming from. Look, man, when I was a kid, I was a huge X Files fan, way into the unexplained. Like, still love talking about it. Yeah. Love astrophysics. Love exploring. You know, I just had I did a podcast with Mark Defont where we just talked about the universe for three hours. Man, I love stuff like that. And to me, it makes sense that we might not be alone. And I'll be the first person to embrace that. And really, I you know. I want to believe, and, and I find this stuff so fascinating and so interesting, but the other part of my brain often quickly finds reasons to debunk things, and I've never seen somebody jump from kind of half-truth to unexplained half-truth the way that Tom DeLonge did on that podcast, with the exception of maybe Jeremy Corbell. Hmm. On the last oh, one that, that he did yeah. with George Knapp, I mean, yeah. uh, talk about drinking the Kool Aid, Jeremy Corbell. Oh my lord, Corbell. Uh,
1: he he's been critical of my uh, analyses, but you can tell he really doesn't. He's not even in some cases he's not even familiar with what the analyses actually are. Like right. he said that the debunker's explanation of gimbal, which is the rotating one was that it's a distant jet that is banking, which is absolutely not the explanation that I'm giving. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, and uh, I thought, I I thought you, you were you clear
0: enough in, in your video too. I mean, I only watched it once, but I understood very clearly what it was that you were saying.
1: Yeah, and I've made like five videos like explaining different aspects of it because people like say, oh, well, why isn't the horizon rotating? Why is, why is this doing this? Uh, so I've made all these different videos. But he... Yeah, no. He and he keeps going on about the bird hypothesis. Like uh, there's this this thing on uh, UFO Twitter, like the people who like UFOs on Twitter, and uh, they started doing memes about me and saying that I I thought that all the UFOs were birds because for one of the one of the videos, uh, the GoFast video, it shows essentially a small, cold object. As you can tell that by the it's it's white. Uh, and the, the ocean is black and it's, it's in black hot mode. So a white object means that it's cold. And so I hypothesized my, my initial guess was that perhaps it was a bird. Yeah. You know, perhaps it's a bird like flying along at uh, some high altitude, you know, it's in cold air. So it'll appear cold. And, uh, maybe that's what explained it. Maybe it was just a soaring albatross or something. And the, the video kind of compressed it down to a blob. I kind of, uh, now think it's more likely it was a balloon because those are the kind of the only two things that fly in the air that are cold like balloons and uh, and cold birds but Corbell, i ignored this balloon hypothesis completely even though it was the main hypothesis now and he focused on the bird and then he tried to debunk it by saying that if the bird was colder than the ocean then the bird would be hypothermic and it would die which, you know, maybe sounds like a reasonable explanation. But even that, even his attempt to debunk a hypothesis that I'm not really particularly fond of anyway, because I prefer the balloon hypothesis, even that was wrong. Because when you look at a bird, you're not looking at its internal temperature. You're not looking at you're not sticking a thermometer of its butt and measuring its temperature. You're looking at the temperature of the exterior of its feathers. And birds, especially birds that have evolved to fly at 13,000 feet, are very well insulated you know if you actually take <laughs> you take thermal imagery of a penguin which is the, the best insulated bird, uh, obviously it's not a penguin but you know just an example of uh, thermal imagery of a cold bird, penguins actually appear on camera colder than the air around them right because the, the feathers have evolved so well to uh, um, not radiate heat and to absorb heat that they they, they appear colder than the air around them. So if you've got a bird, like, I don't know, a pelican or an albatross or something that's flying at 13,000 feet, which is, is going to be like 45 degrees Fahrenheit colder than the ocean uh, air, uh, because of just, you know, things get colder as you get higher, obviously. Uh, its external feathers are going to be really cold. So it will show up on the infrared camera as being cold. And so Jeremy Corbell spent, I don't know, however long he spent, like, a year or something trying to figure out this explanation because my explanation has been out there for that long, not two years actually. And he couldn't even get that right. I don't, <laughs> I don't know how he
0: kind of got woven into the fabric of this whole like, I, I don't know where the hell he came from, to be honest with you. I you know, I I had known about the Lazar stuff for de- yeah. for decades. Because I, I had read about it in the 90s, you know, and I knew. Lazar and I knew George Knapp because you know I used to listen to Art Bell and um, I, I was fairly interested to hear what George Knapp had to say also too and he wrote the forward to Lazar's book I read that um, you know I I think to some degree George Knapp tries to you know not not completely gulp down the Kool Aid I think mm-hmm. he does a, a somewhat respectable job of trying to I mean I think he's definitely bought into the story. But um Yeah.
1: He's like the godfather figure here, George he, Knapp.
0: He is, but Corbell kinda came out of nowhere. Like
1: he's yeah, he's like the Michael Corleone guy.
0: Yeah. He's like, <laughs> Where the uh, hell did he come from?
1: <laughs> he he worked with George Knapp uh on did the he? skinwalker stuff. Yeah. Yeah, if you look at the Skinwalker documentaries, um uh, Corbell and Knapp are there together. I think they uh, probably did some writing together. Uh, I'm not sure exactly how it happened, but they end up working together. And so Corbell gets Knapp's contacts. He gets to talk to, I you don't know, like Fravor, people like that, and, and Lazar. He just kind of gets gets dialed in to the yeah, whole Yeah, he's sitting team. there
0: next to these guys. You know, yeah. he's sitting next to Fravor on that podcast. He's sitting next to Lazar on that podcast. And he's sitting next to George Knapp. And I'm thinking to myself these three guys would be wonderful guests by themselves <laughs> uh, he's he doesn't add anything to the discussion he he yeah you know he he reinforces points that have already been made and he does it in a manner that i find very annoying uh and i just don't i don't get well, what he's doing there he's like this broker kind of taking a, exactly a commission us. off of these people's stories that he didn't earn yeah I, i'm not
1: sure i put it that way but i think i don't think Joe Rogan invited uh, Jeremy Corbell to be on the show. Joe Rogan wanted to get Lazar on, he wanted to get Fravor on, and he wanted to get Knapp on. Right. And uh, uh, Corbell was the guy kind of acting kind of as their agent and said, and said well, come on as a team. Yeah, you know, I think uh, Lazar, he, he acted like all all like nervous and said he, he wanted Corbell to be there to, to help improve it or something like that. And uh, I guess like he just presented himself as a package deal. Yeah, You know, I don't really know what happened, but that's it it certainly appears that he was a bit extraneous in some of those conversations. Well, all you have
0: to do is watch the documentary. Because, listen, having heard Lazar on Art Bell, you know, a bunch of times, and being familiar with the story, when I found out that there was a filmmaker doing something on it, regardless of Mm -hmm. whether or not you believe in it, right? I was like, oh, this will be an interesting presentation. Let's see if anything new comes to the table, specifically with his... Education, which was something I, I was interested in, and with oh, yeah. Lazar's book as well, which of course I thought did a terrible job of explaining that, but um, but I was interested in it, and and I watched the documentary, and it was like, you know, I, I don't know if the documentary was like ninety minutes, it was like. 65 of those minutes were about Jeremy Corbell and had Jeremy Corbell on the screen I'm like what the fuck is this guy doing on the screen like you know these shots of him in a darkened room talking on the cell phone and you know I'm like what the hell am I watching what is this
1: yeah it was uh, the Jeremy Corbell show and you know he's really into the subject I think he he believes it to a large extent but he's also um, an entertainer he's trying to make uh, works of art. Yeah, you, know, you see the, the things he does. He's got all these fancy camera movements and moody lighting and everything, which you know looks great, but you know isn't perhaps driving forward the search for truth in the uh, uh, the,
0: the situation. <laughs> and if if the story is as real as he wants it to be, you don't need any funny camera cuts. You don't need <laughs> any dark music. It's a fucking incredible story, right? Like,
1: <laughs> sure, yeah. But then you've got yeah, Skinwalker Ranch, and the big selling point of Skinwalker Ranch is that they have bullet po- bulletproof werewolves. Yeah, so I don't even. Was... I'm not
0: even familiar with that story. <laughs> yeah, that's
1: uh, that's like one of the foundational stories about Skinwalker Ranch that he presents as being true, essentially, and the implication there is that there is some kind of trans-dimensional portal on the ranch <laughs> through which these bulletproof werewolves come through and, uh, and attack the sheep on the ranch or the cattle when it's probably just some dogs or coyotes and the guy who tried to shoot them missed. Right. And the story grew in the telling. Or it was a dream some guy had. But... <laughs> Yeah, it's it's funny because like uh, long time ago, Joe Rogan did this show. Joe Rogan questions everything. Yeah, I remember that. And yeah, he he one of the episodes was on Skinwalker, mm-hmm. I believe, because he he told me that he he talked to the people who seemed reasonable, and then he talked to somebody who told him this tale about a bulletproof werewolf, and he thought this guy's full of shit. And that was part of Joe Rogan's partial awakening from the more extreme end of the conspiracy theory yeah. spectrum.
0: Did you notice at the beginning of the Lazar interview with Rogan when they sit down, one of the first things that Rogan says is, you know, we went out to dinner last night and we discussed all this stuff in advance.
1: Yeah, I, I kind of remember that, but I don't know. like,
0: Yeah, it's like one of the first things that when they... Lead into that interview, yeah. No, because I you saying that. I'm yeah. trying to watch it, you know, with a semi skeptical lens too. And and that immediately, we were not three minutes into the podcast. He's like, "Yeah, when Jeremy and you and I went out to dinner last night, you know, we discussed all this stuff." And and the other thing that's always there's been a couple of things that have bothered me about the Lazar story. One is this incessant need to repeat that he doesn't want to be there and he doesn 't want to talk about it yet he <laughs> keeps showing up and he keeps talking about it that's that's you know Bob doesn't have to be here right Bob yeah. doesn't even like doing this and yeah uh, it's like
1: the like the Vice news did a thing on Commander Fravor and they 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 showed him talking about how he doesn't like to be in the limelight and he doesn't do things like this normally and then the next shot of him is in him being in the lead car of a carnival with people dancing around him. <laughs> a UFO carnival
0: (laughs) oh that's even better that's even better yeah but like with with Lazar and then you know that interview look people give him credit because they say his story has stayed exactly the same and I think uh, I think the truth for Lazar is an amalgam of some of the things that he says probably 10 to 15 percent of what he claims and 90 to 80 you know 85 to 90 percent of uh, not what he claims I mean he obviously he obviously was at Los Alamos either as a contractor or whatever at one point and um, he's obviously you know he's got that pay stub from naval intelligence and I you know I think he may have dabbled in in something but but I think that's probably where it stops I think you know to just make the, the other leaps after that are so insanely difficult. I was so excited to get his book, too, because the one thing Stanton Friedman always took exception with that I always couldn't get past either was not just his education credentials disappearing, but Mm -hmm. the idea that he couldn't recall any of his professors, nobody from campus remembered him. I mean, there's certain things where if you were to go wipe out my degree, Mick, from my university... I'd still be able to tell you, you know, I sat in astronomy class with Professor John Stoller or Professor Rodney Mater was my English professor or I took classes in Main Hall or wherever. And there would be people there that knew me, that saw me, that, you know, watched me streak down the main street <laughs> of campus naked and drunk. I mean, you know, there's certain things you do. People kind of recall that. Yet there, yeah, there's you, none you of that, that. But he clings to this Caltech and MIT story.
1: Yeah, that's pretty ridiculous that uh, they would the idea that there's a conspiracy theory to remove his records and why don't they just, I don't know, take him to the, the, off, the, to the moon base or something and wipe his brain. It's, it's like this, it doesn't seem like a useful thing for, uh, the government to do, to remove his, his education records. How does it, how does it help their case? Yeah. Yeah,
0: just remove him if you want to remove something, right? <laughs>
1: Yeah, I suppose that uh, that would be a bit much. But yeah, it, it, but the, just the the fact that he makes this claim and doesn't back down on it doesn't mean it's true. Just because someone consistently uh, tells the same story over and over again doesn't mean that it actually is true. People change their stories when they're telling the truth because people's memories change. And the fact that he doesn't actually change you know, is is almost like. Uh, more likely that he made it up because it's, uh, it's it's a story he's had to practice telling to get right all the time. So it's exactly the same every time he tells it.
0: And you can deliver a story. I mean, if you're a good liar or even worse than that, if you're sociopathic to the degree where you would lie about something that extreme for that long, you can deliver it in a manner that really... You know, sounds convincing and you can pass lie detector tests, too. That was the other thing. Oh, he passed a polygraph, you know, or he, yeah. he took one that he passed and one came back inconsistent, which, uh, you know, he's, well, a, he's a
1: smart guy. Right. He's a very smart guy. And he, he can figure out how to how to trick a lie detector test. I mean, there's loads of, you know, things that will tell you how to do it. It's not too complicated. Where do you so. think? The,
0: where do you think the truth lies in that story?
1: With Lazar, yeah. uh, I think, like you said, you know, he worked in that uh, Los Alamos. To, uh, probably uh, maybe had to get some kind of security clearance for something perhaps, but just basically going into something. I don't think he saw uh, flying saucers. I don't think he saw alien craft. I don't think there was any element 115. I don't think he ever had any of it. I don't think it ever existed at that time. And uh, I don't think the army was experimenting with stolen alien technology. I think that was all just stuff that he made up.
0: What's the what's the debunker's thesis on 115? Because people say, oh, he knew that that, you know, he knew that that existed before it was even out there. But wasn't there a spot for it on the periodic table already or something?
1: Yeah, there's spots for all of them. <laughs> like obviously, there's there's a they're numbered for a reason. Like there's a natural progression of uh of how these things would go uh, and so that was just a theorized element essentially and it was it was discovered like i think there was it actually leapfrogged uh maybe 114 or 113 or something like that because there's just how the di- discovery of the elements has naturally progressed throughout the history of science uh, we, we started with the the simplest things like hydrogen and oxygen and I discover that those are elements and we move on to like things like iron and uh, sulfur and just all the nice simple things and then later we get to things that are much harder to get things that don't naturally occur things that only occur through the products of uh, you know various types of nuclear events like bombardment and, uh, and fission and fusion and things like that. And we've just been discovering them and just the numbers have been getting bigger and bigger. So 115 was was on the list to be discovered.
0: <laughs> and isn't there a case, too, that like similar to the Higgs boson? I think with 115, there was a case like we knew it we knew it was there. We just hadn't identified it yet or something like that.
1: Yeah, no, it, it was it was like you could you can model uh, atoms, basically, and the the uh, proton, neutron and electron combinations and see, you know, how the, you know, what what they would do. So you could you could say mathematically that we should be getting this, but you know, the thing it wasn't just one fifteen that he said he had. It it was a stable isotope of one fifteen, which is something we don't even have now. Uh, if one fifteen's got a half life of, of some ridiculously short time, I mean, I'm going to look it up right now, but it's like you know, a fraction of a second. Um, and he was saying there was enough that he could, I think at some point he said he, he took some home with him.
0: Yeah, he, he did. That was kind of the, the rumor at one point. And then there was this, his work, United Nuclear, had been raided by the FBI on more than one occasion. Uh, you know, he had this shop that was selling all these crazy esoteric elements and, you know, radioactive. They were selling uranium and all kinds of shit. And they for one reason or another got raided by the FBI and he always attributed that kind of tacitly and under the under the surface to they knew that I took, you know, a sample of element one fifteen with me and they're and they're looking for it.
1: Right. Yeah. And uh yeah, I think like they, they said like a long half life for one fifteen would be several seconds. But uh <laughs> not enough time to even get it home but yeah i think i don't know what it is now Yeah, this this article is rather dense uh but yeah it's it's not something that he really predicted
0: and that was the big he thing predict- too in the, in the podcast when they talk about him taking it and i think corbell or rogan says to him like well what's up did you take some or whatever and and jeremy corbell's like you know we we won't talk about it you know yeah <laughs>
1: <laughs> because obviously not and yet he said he did
0: so I guess uh, moving forward from there, one of the things I wanted to bring up with you is the coronavirus pandemic. Uh, I haven't seen you discuss this anywhere, but I haven't I haven't been on your site in a while. And I wanted to kind of get your take on what you think is conspiracy and what you think is fact when it comes to uh, how the nation is Learning about Mm. coronavirus. Specifically, just over the last couple of days, we had this hydroxychloroquine debate, you know, where these doctors came out in California and have claimed that this drug has, you know, efficacy and that it's being suppressed by the government and big pharma and they don't want to acknowledge that it works. And you have all these conspiracy theories about COVID. So talk to me where Mick West stands.
1: Well, I'm kind of a big science guy, unfortunately. So if big science says something, then I usually would defer to them. So, yeah, uh, you know, I'm kind of with Fauci, who's Trump's, Trump's head of the task force, Dr. Fauci. You know, Trump isn't generally disagreeing with him um, on everything. You know, he does disagree on some things like the speed of reopening. But yeah, you know, Fauci is, is basically has the weight of the entire medical establishment behind him. He doesn't really have a financial interest in this, despite what some people are saying. Like he has some patent uh, that I think like on an outside, chance would get him like $100 or something like that. But it was was just a standard patent that they get at the universities. And I I think that hydroxychloroquine uh, hasn't been really shown to work. The video that was shown with the doctors in the lab coats you probably know that one of those doctors turned out to be this completely crazy woman who think there was some kind of, I don't know, weird demon seed that was spreading the virus. And she was a homeopath, uh, which is, it's a kind of a pseudoscientific form of medicine and she's weirdly religious. And I, I I really, I must say think that it's kind of the hydroxychloroquine is almost like Trump wanted to be right about it. Like, remember when there was the, flu- the the hurricane was coming towards Florida, and he he said at some point it was gonna hit uh, Louisiana, and the National Weather Service said, no, it wasn't. <laughs> and then he comes out later with a, a map where he's taken a Sharpie and drawn an extra loop around uh, Louisiana. Uh, like, it's that kind of level of wanting to be right which almost feels like it's, it's just driving this this whole thing. And it becomes a political thing.
0: Right, yeah, it definitely it, it's has. It's like
1: people, conservatives who are Trump supporters want to get hydroxychloroquine because Trump said it works and because uh, Dr. Fauci, who's some kind of liberal, uh, said that it, it doesn't work. And it becomes this ridiculous thing where the science is ignored or cherry-picked. You only, you only take the, the results or the the doctors in white lab coats who agree with you and and you go with that rather than going with the actual big science which isn't big because it's like uh uh it's it's this big con and that everyone's trying to make money it's big because it's it's the scientific establishment is this kind of self-correcting entity where people check each other's work and you get this peer review process and you get when a, a study comes out that shows something, some other group will try to replicate that story, study and they will try to, to see if it does actually happen. You don't just rely on one guy saying, well, I have five patients and I gave them all hydroxychloroquine and none of them got coronavirus because that isn't any kind of statistical evidence, but people, people prefer one thing, so they go for that. Yeah, that was one thing I noticed about else.
0: her statements where she said, you know, I gave it to 300 patients and none of them died or something, you know. And it was like, all right, well, statistically, X amount of those patients were going to survive anyway without giving yeah. a breakdown of how many had, you know, are were of what age and how many had, uh, you know, pre-existing conditions and things like that. Uh, so that in and of itself is a uh, non what do they call that a non-varied or univaried uh, set of data it doesn't doesn't include all of the all of the yeah. nuances that it know, should no,
1: yeah you, you obviously if you're having a study saying nobody died you've got to ha- also have a group of people in which people did die right so if, if nobody died across the board it doesn't mean anything because you, there's no variable there there's no independent variable
0: so when you talk about big pharma, though, and you say I'm a big pharma guy, I mean, doesn't it concern you that just an hour ago we were talking about how money kind of moves the needle a lot and how lobbyists and corporations can sure, yeah. really, you know, push things around in their best interest that may not be in the best interest of public. So do you think that do you ever think about that when you just yeah, kind of take, yeah, take a- the word of big pharma, like you said?
1: It's, it's a problem. Well I don't I not say i take the word a big pharma. I take the word a big science.
0: Big science,
1: okay. So scientists like uh, and to a large extent, like when I say big, I'm talking about the entire world. I'm talking about like the scientific establishment across the world, not just in America. Like we can say like, you know, American pharmaceutical companies are going to go for profit. But yeah, there's also pharmaceutical companies in, in Europe and in Asia. Uh, And, uh, you know, even in in like South Africa and uh, uh, South America and and Africa, but, you know, mostly in the uh, countries like, uh, say, Germany, Germany is working on this, the UK is working on it, France is working on it, Italy is working on it, Uh, there are properties like uh, labs in Brazil working on it, everybody around the world is working on trying to figure out what the cure is for this and it's going to be quite hard for one big company to kind of uh, corner the market in the cure when everybody around the entire world and you know, the chinese and the japanese uh the koreans south koreans they're all they're all these you've got to move away from this american-centric view of conspiracies uh, these conspiracies don't can't just work just in America. It would have to encompass the entire world. And you say it would have to include all these other countries. And there really isn't any good evidence that there's this big collusion between all of the pharmaceutical companies and all of the universities and all of the scientists who are the research scientists in infectious diseases uh, to somehow all of these tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of people are all somehow going to get a cut of this uh, this cure. It just doesn't work. It just doesn't make any sense as a conspiracy theory.
0: When you look at the virus itself, what does Mick West think about uh, the overall picture? I mean, do we have most of the headwinds behind us? Uh, is the worst no. still to come? Do we, uh, you know, where do you where do you place this virus in terms of pandemics of days past? I mean, what's your general overview about the virus and where we are with it? I'm not
1: especially op- optimistic, I must say, because things uh, do seem to be getting a bit worse. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of hoping that this second spike that we've been having is gonna give some people pause, but there's this, this politicization of It's just so unfortunate in that people are still thinking that the figures are being overblown. And there is some truth to the fact that, yeah, you know, more testing means more cases, but, the deaths are lagging behind the cases by a, a certain amount and they are they are starting to rise the deaths more people are dying uh, so we're going to get spikes in the number of deaths and if people are thinking they can just relax that's just it's not going to work i don't know if you you know how you reacted to it at the start but when uh, my wife and I kind of went into lockdown here. We were like really nervous about like going out and getting groceries and then we got deliveries and then we'd wipe things down because we thought it was being uh, uh, transmitted be, via touch. But now we go out and we get um, Starbucks at the drive-through and you don't even bother too much about wiping the cup down or anything like that because it, you, you you relax after a certain amount of time. And maybe I'm being, being a bit uh, unsafe here, I don't know. but. And people like start going to events because they're like, oh, well, it's been a while. I haven't got it yet. Everything's fine. So,
0: or I've had it a little, and, and I haven't had the symptoms.
1: Yeah. Yeah. People think, oh, I had the sniffles last week. That must have been it. I'm going to be fine now. So, like I say, and, and do, you, th-
0: do you think that the amount of data we've gotten, because I was very similar, I was you know, one of the first in December, in January, I was pointing this out. I mean, we didn't really, it didn't become a headline. It didn't become the lead in the mainstream media until late February. And so in the six weeks preceding that, I was on Twitter talking about, all right, well, I'm taking these preparations, I'm buying masks, I'm buying gloves, I'm doing this, that, and the other, mostly because I didn't have any yeah. visibility into exactly how bad it was. We got data coming out of China, which I don't trust at all. And so until we at least got some data in other countries, um, I was nervous, A, about, you know, could China be lying about the death rate, number one, and B, what's the effect going to be, the culture shock going to be on, you know, the country once we figure out that this is here, it's spreading and... Uh, You know, it may turn out to be worse than they've let on. But since then, like you said, to your analog, uh, I have really been able to put my mind at ease a little bit more because of the the robust amount of data that we get. And there was never, I don't think there was ever a thesis that we were going to stop this in its tracks. It was always we were just going to flatten the curve. But isn't it true that the more data, the more raw data that we get, the less the uh, the infection fatality rate uh, appears to be and that it's moving significantly lower isn't that good news
1: uh, sure but you know you're still getting like in some parts of the country uh, emergency rooms and uh, the wards overflowing with people because like things are starting to to ramp up again and we do have like what is it 150,000 dead now and it's probably... And uh, people are saying going to be multiple hundreds of thousands of people dead, and it's not all just old sick people. There's lots of uh, lots of younger people uh, die of it as well. So it's I I, I feel like you know you're a financial guy, but my feeling here is that the market is being somewhat irrational in its response to what's going on. It's like the market feels to me. Like, they're thinking, oh, it's, you know, we'll get a vaccine and everything will be fine. But we've just had this, you know, we've got got so many millions of people out of work. We've got degrees of civil unrest that we haven't had for some time. And we've got this, like, what, 30% drop in the GDP just came out. And, and yet, like, the market's continuing to rise because it's got this momentum.
0: No, that's be, it's, it's because it's, of the central bank, Mick. It doesn't have anything to do with the underlying economic data. Uh, the central bank is providing liquidity and propping up the market. And that's it. That's the only reason we saw a V-shaped recovery in the market.
1: Yeah, but what's going to happen, though? Is, is well, it going to prop it up indefinitely? The, the dollar so is going, going to collapse.
0: That's what's going to happen. And you're going to want to own gold and silver.
1: <laughs> right. Yeah, so I I I feel like there's
0: uh, hmm, I'm, I'm I'm
1: concerned. I would say that uh, I don't think I don't think we've really seen the actual results of uh, of the coronavirus.
0: Let me ask you about something you just said. You talked about the hundred and fifty thousand people who have died, and you said they're not all old people. Do you know what cross section of that hundred and fifty thousand people who have died are people under the age of 60, sixty, seventy? Uh,
1: no, I don't. But I, I suspect it's it's well, under the age of sixty. I think I'm not sure, but I, I'm going to guess like ten to twenty percent. Just okay. a guess there.
0: Well, I'm just asking because you know we're we're doing a whole podcast about data mining and right. making kind of blanket statements, and I would be interested yeah. in. Yeah, I'm
1: sure you could look that up fairly easily.
0: Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm I'm interested in knowing, you know, when you say that there's. They're not all people that are old. You're right. But the question is, how many of them aren't?
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, I guess we'd have to look it up. Let's see. This is Chinese figures. No, no Actually, this is American. I don't,
0: don't, don't trust anything uh, that comes out of China.
1: <laughs> no, this is the CDC. Uh, which I don't which takes... The, yeah, they, they
0: take their Chinese data from China. By the way, China says they only have 90,000 infections or whatever. I mean... Now,
1: this, this was... United States figures it said under the age of sixty five it was thirty five percent of hispanics twenty nine point five percent of non-white were aged under sixty five and thirteen percent of white uh people who died were aged under sixty five
0: do they so if you act- do they break off the uh, number of people that had pre-existing conditions or no uh no no because you've seen that they've been reporting deaths of people that have died from other things but also test positive for covid right yeah yeah there was a yeah, guy it, there was a guy it, that they wrecked his do motorcycle actually break for- it
1: down. I I it's just a huge wall of uh, different uh, breakdowns here so but you could look into that put that on the list but yeah i i people do young people do die i mean i know a friend of uh a friend of mine, his brother, died, and he was a young guy who was a marathon runner and uh, died of coronavirus. So, you know, it, it does happen. Anecdote, obviously, but uh, you can you can look up the actual figures. And yeah, a lot of people who get it don't die, but they end up with lung scarring, which leaves them with permanent shortness of breath. So it's, uh, it's a problem.
0: Yeah. Have, do you think that the vaccine is going to... I mean, you mentioned before kind of concerns about the vaccine not being the end-all, be-all solution. It, do you yeah. think that's because of the, the the length of time the antibodies last? I mean, what do you what do you attribute? Yeah, it I don't to? know.
1: I think I think it's it's unknown as yet because uh, there's the, some indication that you might not get uh, lasting immunity after having it yourself, uh, which would be a, a bit of a problem. And so, you know, what what how is the vaccine going to work? I don't really know enough about immunolo- immunology to actually give an opinion on that.
0: Do you have an opinion about where the virus originated?
1: Uh, China. (laughs) Well, you mean was it in a lab? I I don't. More specifically, yeah, Uh, I think it probably jumped from from animals to humans, like uh, other similar viruses have, and they because the the DNA it comes from a a bat originally, and they think it came through via some other animal, and then at some point uh, jumped to humans possibly like, you know, a pangolin or something like that. And then it was eaten in there just because people eat things. And that's how it it came over. From what I know, from what people have done, analyzing the DNA, it looks fairly straightforward in terms of that being the actual route. Uh, It could have been something that they'd already isolated and they had in the lab and then it escaped the lab, but then the origin is still essentially the same could it be something that they genetically engineered and it just looks like that because they're really good at genetic engineering yeah obviously it's possible but there's no real indication that that's what happened and it's yeah that obviously it's affects china too just the same as it affects other countries
0: yeah and if it if it was animal based and then they took it into the lab after that it is possible that they would modify it or mess with it right and then you know, so so you're sure, saying there, but- there, there's a chance that even though it came from an animal and wasn't 100, you know, modified from scratch by humans, that it still may have escaped. I mean, to me, Mick, going back to the circumstantial evidence, to say that this came from the Wuhan seafood market, and then to hear that there's a virology lab, a level four, you know, virology lab five miles down the road, I, I don't know. I mean, you you want direct evidence, but on the other hand, sometimes it's if it walks like a duck and talks like a duck, sometimes it's just a duck, right?
1: Right. But like you know, you, you talk, you're talking about like creating, a, tailoring a virus to do something. Like how do you actually do that? The only way you could, you could kind of do it is to make modifications to the DNA, and then release it into a population, and then see what happens to that population, and then then retweak your modifications. We don't know exactly how virus DNA works. We can't. We can't just dial in. We once, you know set a few numbers and say, we want a virus with this, this R number and these characteristics that only affects old people and doesn't affect Chinese people as badly, uh, maybe only affects people near Wuhan, but not in other cities. Uh, you, you, they don't have that level of control without actually experimenting on it. So you you can't just create something from nothing and then release it. This is kind of like a uh, something I think that Hollywood movies have given us this impression that you can create this perfectly formed thing and then release it. It would be like like writing a computer program and never actually running it until (laughs) you would finished writing it, which is obviously impossible because you have to constantly run your computer program all the way, all the time, all the way through development and past release too. And it's gonna have bugs in it, it's not gonna be perfect. Whereas here we've got something that looks exactly like a naturally occurring virus. And it's doing this, this very specific set of things, and there's really only, there's really only one version of it other than the, the small natural mutations that have happened after it's spread to humans.
0: So is there a – I mean, I guess my question is there's still a chance, though, that it may have come out of that lab. Well, yeah, but
1: there's a chance that those videos show UFOs, right? I and mean, just because there's a chance of something, or that it seems like a a tasty explanation that seems to fit the facts, yeah, there's a <laughs> chance that Building Seven was destroyed by controlled demolition, and it, it kind of looks like it was. So let's go with that explanation. Yeah, there's a sure, there's a chance, but why would they do it? What, what 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 are the proposed theories for the reason why they would release the, uh, this virus in their own city?
0: Right. We have to get you looking at central banking, Mick. I mean, <laughs> honestly, we, we have to get you we have to get you informed as to the world of the Federal Reserve and how the yeah. how the macro economy works, how the global economy works, and it's really it's the largest Ponzi scheme of all time. And
1: it's it's interesting. It's an interesting story uh, topic. What do you think of G. Edward Griffin? I'm not familiar with him. He wrote the the creature from Jekyll Island, which is about uh, the Federal Reserve. Uh, the reason I mentioned him, he was a big guy in the early mm-hmm. days of uh, the chemtrail conspiracy theory. And ah. I was just wondering if there's any kind of crossover there. Like he still he he, he hosts a, a Red Pill Expo where he he wakes people up about uh, <laughs> uh, the Fed and chemtrails.
0: Well, there's a lot uh, of people that. There's a lot of people that are wise to what the Fed's doing that are critical of the central banking model that are that dabble in all types of conspiracy theories the ones that you know I think mm. are interesting and other ones that I think are just downright ridiculous but there's a lot of crossover there
1: yeah um, uh, money is a very interesting topic and I think it's one that's very not well understood you know I'm sure you, obviously you're very familiar with things like uh, what's it fractional fractional banking fractional reserve banking stuff like that and uh how money is created and the various levels of money m1 m2 m3 and and all that it's fascinating stuff and people don't really appreciate what's actually happening at the level how money is made and how it works and how the system works and i'm sure you've got a lot more experience talking about this type of stuff
0: well it's in essence like you pointed out earlier that Corporations use lobbyists to kind of get what they want, and there's a lot of money involved. This is the grand puba of schemes, right this this yeah. this concerns the entire money supply,
1: yeah, but is it is it the be all and end all great giant conspiracy theory for people to make money, or is it just propping up a failed
0: system? Well, it could be both.
1: So you think uh, there are people. Like siphoning out uh, money via the Federal Reserve, oh my god! Kind yeah. of
0: like, uh, well, I mean, look yeah. at what look at what we just did with the CARES Act, right? We printed five trillion dollars out of thin air, which redistributes all of the purchasing power that is uh, out now that's already been distributed, and it's essentially like a reweighting of the purchasing power of the dollar, and they threw every U.S. citizen, you know, twelve hundred dollars. And they took trillions of dollars and gave them to corporations and basically the rich and people that didn't need it uh, in the form of loans that will turn into grants and in the form of supporting their uh, bonds in the bond market and things like that. So it's a it's a pornographic redistribution of wealth that widens the inequality gap in a way that most people have no clue. And it does two things. It. It not only makes the rich richer and widens the inequality gap, but it also uh, gives politicians and government officials the ability to promise things that we can't pay for and uh, give the public that don't understand the system the impression that we can pay for anything, cancel any debt we want, and have an unlimited supply of money, as, our, as Neil Kashkari said on 60 Minutes, without any consequences. And that's dangerous.
1: Yeah, it doesn't sound good, but it's not a subject I'm that familiar with. Obviously, it's an important subject, but
0: I'm hoping the economy won't collapse just yet. When do you think it's going to happen? When's the crash going to happen? I'm not really sure, Mick, to be honest with you. I think the economy has collapsed. We just don't see it in the stock market. So when
1: is the dollar going to collapse?
0: That's the million dollar question, right? That's what everybody wants to know. And yeah. there's a lot of moving parts to that thesis. I mean, you brought up M2, right? We've expanded the money supply so significantly, but a lot of the money hasn't hit consumer prices yet because it's kind of parked. And there's this velocity of money argument that it hasn't gone out and you know hit the price of bread yet. Um, but really, that, that is, that's the question. And if you look at something like gold, Mick, which has been... Uh, really a store of value and recognized as money for thousands of years, when you price that out in U.S. dollars, gold is right now at all-time highs, which when you get the inverse of that, what you're also saying is that the dollar is worth the least amount that it's ever been worth against gold. Oftentimes when people say the strength of the dollar, Mick, they're comparing it to a basket of other fiat currencies, which is other currencies not backed by anything. So the euro, you know, the the Canadian dollar, um, none of those are backed by gold or silver. But when you look at any of those currencies versus gold, gold is at all time highs in price, which essentially means that those currencies are at all time lows.
1: Yeah, but they're all they're all the same low. Gold only has one price.
0: Right. Right, and there is this like prisoner's dilemma between all the central banks right if if all the central banks of the world all agree that this is the way the system's gonna work, well, what does that mean? Does that mean it's ever gonna blow up?
1: Yeah, well, it's in no one's interest for the system to blow up, so <laughs> or is it well, is there a
0: you're right in general it isn't but the question is whether or not the the market whether or not market forces it, it's a it's mm-hmm. a game of psychology right and it, it's a confidence game of sorts
1: fascinating stuff yeah i'm i'm i am interested in, in money i think it's interesting going back to uh uh the early colonists in the united states when they they didn't have enough like, i think foreign money because they, they they used like you know the uk money or whatever when they came over and so they had to make their own money. And so you got all these kind of little funny little local money. I think they called it scrip at the time. Yeah. And money essentially at that time was just a way of kind of lubricating the workings of the economy. But it was still you know, essentially a fiat thing. Right. But it, it, was, it was still a useful tool. Like you need some kind of medium of exchange. And they didn't have gold, so... <laughs> and you, did it. you
0: mess with Bitcoin at all? Uh,
1: no, I wish I had. I, I, I opened an account in the early days of Bitcoin, and I completely forgot about it. And then uh, it went up like, you know, 10,000% or something, 10,000 times. And so I thought, oh, I wonder if I bought $100 worth of Bitcoin uh, 10 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> so I rushed and got my password and looked at it, and it was uh, zero Bitcoin, yep.
0: unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, I, I had that same thing. I checked the old account, right? Did I buy $50 yeah. of yeah. this at one point and just leave yeah. it? No, I didn't. I feel like I did. <laughs> Damn it. I'm interested, like, as a programmer, though, have you ever examined how it works?
1: Uh, not the code level, but, you know, I understand the, the basics. I mean, it's not really that complicated. There's the, the mining of coins and then there's the blockchain.
0: What do you think uh, in general about it as a concept?
1: I I think the fascinating thing about it is not knowing who originally uh, started it. And that's, uh, you know, he's still out there somewhere with his, like, you know, core bitcoins or whatever they were. And there's, uh, it's... But I don't know if it's a long term viable solution for being money I mean like I was saying with the script thing uh, in the colonies you need some kind of medium of exchange and it it's kind of feels tempting to think oh we've got this great technological solution but then it, just, it doesn't mean it's immune to hacking Right. It, there's the various attacks over the years that have, have happened to it and you know what if uh we get yeah you know, some kind of breakthrough in cryptography that makes it uh, so the blockchain isn't as secure as we thought it was uh what if we get you know the ability somehow to instantly uh find all the remaining bitcoins i'm not sure have they
0: all been found yet the bitcoins no sure i don't think are. so they they have yeah, but... the amount that you can mine every so often but i mm-hmm. think uh, they're not and then it like kind of asymptotes I think until eventually, you know, it takes a trillion years to mine the very last Bitcoin or whatever.
1: <laughs> it does. But what if someone comes along with a quantum computer that can find them in like a fraction of a second and then they all suddenly get yeah, that, dumped on the market?
0: That's what I brought up to. I was talking to Max Kaiser about this, and that's exactly what I brought up was that that technology is evolving so quickly that it, who knows what you'll be able to do in terms of just usurping the entire protocol at some point. And also, too, like, yeah. I always found that its reliance on digital infrastructure is a achilles heel instead of a That's true instead yes. of an asset <laughs> uh,
1: come the apocalypse then the internet might not be there and how are you going to use your bitcoin wallet
0: exactly your my point. gold
1: coin will still work but uh although come the apocalypse gold might not be that useful for a while anyway yeah
0: <laughs> bullets
1: bullets will be what you need
0: yeah it's brass. brass <laughs> yeah. Uh, Mick, listen, man. I want to thank you so much for coming on and just kind of accepting my invitation out of sure, nowhere. No, will you? Uh, will you please come back on in a couple of months? And uh, I'm sure there will be more bullshit to talk about at that point. And uh, yeah, I would love to have you back, man. I really would.
1: No, it's been a very fun discussion. I like, I liked it. And I and I, need,
0: I apologize I in advance for, for I apologize in advance for any shit that my listeners give you.
1: Oh, you, you, you. I'm sure they won't give me anything I haven't had already.
0: (laughs) Mick West, thank you so much, my friend. I appreciate it. We'll talk soon. Thank you very much. All right, bye bye. That was the one and only Mick West from metabunk.org. His website I will put into the podcast description so that you guys can check it out. Uh, And I'll also link to his Twitter on my Twitter feed so you can check him out as well. Love to hear his perspective, man. I know a lot of people give Mick a lot of shit. But uh, I think it's important to have his perspective the same way. I think it's important to have the perspective of people that strongly disagree with him on every single thing. So that is it. One more time, I want to thank my patrons for making this podcast possible. Thank you guys so much for, at this tough economic time, signing up and supporting the content that you guys listen to. I'm genuinely humbled by it, and it means a lot to me. Got a lot of great things coming up over the next week. But for right now, I'm the fuck out of here. Peace.